Welcome to Cancel Culture, the business of law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Culture, the business of love podcast. Uh, this week, I've got Eric Stahl, Vice President of Global Markets at LexMundi. Uh, for those who don't know, LexMundi uh, is the world's largest international law firm network with over 150 member firms. Uh, hello, Eric. How are you doing? Hi, Megan. Good to talk to you today. Yeah, lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much for, for, for coming on. Um, uh, Eric, why don't you tell us a bit more about uh, the, the network, uh, what you guys do, um, and kind of uh, how it's grown uh, recently as well? Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, well, Lex Moody is what, and was one of the first global legal networks to have formed back in 1989. The interesting aspect uh, about Lex Moody is, is that it, it's really evolved into something which is far more than just a legal network. Um, and in, in very uh, important ways, it provides direct uh, value-added services to the member firms as well as to corporate counsel. Uh, and those consist of uh, training programs, which are highly regarded, um, development of cross-border knowledge and insights through our thought leadership program, our GC summits, our, our insight reports, our practice group reports, uh, and regulatory overviews across the world. And then thirdly, uh, direct services to clients in the form of helping clients to put together cross-border teams um, through our Equisphere service, which allows clients to uh, engage and use law firms in different jurisdictions that have the right expertise in the right place uh, for the right types of matters uh, and to use the firms uh, for cross-border legal work. And they do that by working with the Equisphere team at Alex Mundy. Great, uh, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, you just touched upon the GC Summit. Uh, my understanding is that the next one is in October. Uh, what can we expect from that? Uh, well, this year is, is is one that's very exciting for us. We're returning to a theme that we covered in 2019 already, um, but we did that with a fair degree of prescience, if you will, in that uh, the topic was called Big Data and Big Brother, and it wanted to look at the confluence of the emergence of artificial intelligence with the emergence of a new economic nationalism that we mm. found taking hold uh, around the world. And so um, it, it actually generated some fairly unique insights at the time that we feel uh, were, were accurate, um, but it talked about the implications of a technological bipolarity in the world uh, between in China and the US mainly competing for AI supremacy. It talked right. about uh, the risk to the company of implementing AI across different functions, such as sales and marketing, HR, product development, R&D, and, and, and other areas. And then it talked about the move away from an analog era of compliance to a digital era of compliance in which uh, government may know more about your company and its operations and its potential liabilities than you do. And so mm -hmm. what we considered best efforts of compliance in the future would look different uh, than, than it had uh, here so that was in 2019 and this year with the emergence of chat GPT onto the scene yeah. and uh, the new developments we are calling the summit opening Pandora's box, uh, revisiting big brother and big data. Um, and so we want to revisit that agenda, but of course, some, some things fundamentally changing with AI not being nearly as hypothetical anymore, but being very much extant, uh, number one. Um, number two, um, the role of blockchain uh, in value chain transparency, which is critically important for ESG, and yeah. we can come to that in a short, short moment. Um, and then the emergence of digital currencies and specifically um, the uh, prospect of central bank digital currencies coming mm. onto the scene 
which uh, will go hand in hand with what looks to be a new regulatory super cycle around ESG regulation. So yeah. um, a lot to talk about as far as how um, AI will be transforming business in the economic landscape and what it might mean for general counsel. Cool. And when, when is the summit taking place? It takes place on the 19th and 20th of October in Milan, Italy. Lovely. Uh, so everyone get to Milan. Um, we'll make sure to link um, how people can register uh, to go to the summit um, uh, when we post this uh, episode. Yes, this ties really nicely into our first topic of the day, actually, which is all about kind of um, tech uh, and, and adopting AI, I guess, in-house, but also in private practice. Um, so let's start off with with a story that was in Law.com um, uh, stating that actually in-house teams are, are experiencing that they need to, to embrace tech uh, and I guess AI, um, otherwise they're going to be missing out on, on talent, uh, which is really interesting to me because we always hear about the war for talent uh, between between firms, but we never hear about it um, at the kind of in-house level. So uh, it's, it's fascinating. But yeah, uh, the article co- continues to say that basically um, tech is now a must-have in-house um, and that AI will create a, a discrepancy between the teams that have it and the teams that don't have it. What are your thoughts on kind of the talent war and how kind of tech can um, attract it really, uh, attract talent and in-house and, and I guess in private practice too? The first thing is that that this this role of technology fits within that broader longer term trend. Um, yeah. So it's no longer the case that uh, if you you know if you 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 didn't think you could hack in in private practice, you went in house. Um, that changed <laughs> a long time ago, and we started to see very well qualified and highly talented lawyers who had every ability to make partner and top firms make the decision to go in house uh, for for various reasons, not just lifestyle choices and generational reasons but also because um, some people are just more motivated by the idea of becoming the part a part of ma- managing a business seeing mm-hmm. through how a business evolves and grows and develops and supporting a single business and being under the skin of a company in a different way than uh, than you get to see uh, and get to do necessarily on a, in a private practice environment. So for those reasons, the role of technology is just going to continue to be crucially important for in-house uh, teams to be able to offer to their 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 teams of lawyers uh, in order to uh, to to re, you know to recruit and to retain them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, one of the GCs in the story was saying how, you know, a lot of the new applicants now are asking, you know, how do you use tech in, in your own in-house team? And and a lot of them are expecting to, when they join an in-house team, to to not be doing kind of the the, the more uh, tedious part of the job that's not as, always as fun. So it's, it's really fascinating to me uh, to, to, to see that. And in terms of kind of... Um, you know, the implementation of, of tech, I think a lot of in-house teams now, you know, for, for, for panel reviews, they, they do ask from their advisors to have some sort of, you know, um, softwares in place or, you know, whatever whatever the case may be. Uh, they're quite demanding in terms of tech. Um, how do you see that relationship evolving between in-house and private practice? And especially when we see that there currently are some kind of compliance issues or, or concerns, maybe not issues, but concerns with, say, for example, ChatGPT and, you know, each client will be different. But I don't know where you see that going. Um, yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say two things. Um, one is that, of course, AI and machine learning have become fairly well established and 
perhaps even market standard uh, yeah. for law firms to be able to offer to in-house counsel over the past uh, six, seven years, really. Um, and that's specifically in, in, in certain types of matters and in, in practice areas. Uh, transactions come to mind uh, when it comes to large-scale due diligence exercises, not just around M&A, but it could be acquisition of real estate portfolios. It could be mm-hmm. um, acquisition of loan portfolios and, and things of that nature where um, it's become market standard. Of course, e-discovery is well known and, and we're all familiar with, with with the use of AI machine learning in, 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 in those situations. So on the one hand, um, this is just a continuation or an augmentation, if you will, of, um, of, of, of what the expectation has been uh, yeah. uh, for private practice to be able to deliver to, 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 the, to the client. Um, the second point is that we found in our own research at Lex Mundi uh, rather a paradox uh, between mm. the investments that law firms make, uh, the headlines about those investments uh, that law firms make around technology, innovation, uh, project management, and, and the like, um, on the one hand, and that can be in software, it can be in people, it can be in teams. Um, so those investments on the one hand, which are fairly well touted throughout the legal headlines. And then on the other hand, the perception of in-house counsel that really nothing if or, or, or very little has changed as yeah. to how legal matters are actually handled by law firms. And so um, that's a significant gap if you consider the tens of millions of dollars that have gone into tech innovation and even recruiting people in, in, in unique uh, fee-earning or non-fee-earning uh, roles uh, that do, do or do not necessarily provide the legal advice itself uh, and the fact that, um, that that the in-house counsel are, are fairly dissatisfied that they've seen the, the benefit of greater efficiency or execution or greater value of, of legal advice coming to them as, as, as a result. Um, so we could speculate as to the various hypotheses yeah. um, that, might, that might come from that that observation, that paradox. But but we think uh, with Lex Mundi Equisphere, we think in the research that we've done that it is about how these uh, these new tools get implemented and how mm-hmm. they're um, presented to the client and used by the client, and the client can 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 access them. And that is really important. And then maybe maybe the last thing is just you know the drive around technology. One of the things that we see. Um, with Equus here is we do a, a number of projects with clients um, to, to look at and support advice across multiple jurisdictions um, on any given matter is the, um, the, the, the interest in using technology to keep abreast of regulatory change and development. Mm, that's um, interesting. So I, as I, as I think I mentioned earlier with respect to our summit, we, you know, we are in a, a regulatory super cycle, if you were, globally. Uh, and um, with that in mind, clients are coming to us more frequently and saying to us they need to get ahead of the regulatory curve. And they're hoping that there's a technological solution to support that. But they know that it's always more than a purely technological solution that's going to help them to do that. That's fascinating. And I think earlier you mentioned as well that um, um, technology and AI specifically um, will kind of help with ESG requirements, both in-house and in private practice, I guess. Uh, I mean, currently, what would you say would be the kind of biggest challenges for in-house teams? And I guess maybe some law firms as well in terms of uh, meeting ESG expectations and and, um, how can technology play a role into that? On, On the ESG front, uh, we've done a lot of work um, on 
how it's impacting in-house legal teams over the past couple of years. And that's been through our GC summit uh, yeah. that we faced, uh, where we bring we brought together luminaries as well as uh, practitioners and, 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 and general counsel of major corporations to share with us what they are up against. And one thing that we found is that there is probably too much um, time spent thinking about disclosures and mm-hmm. the disclosure game that has to be played and the difficulty of disclosures in an environment where there are, there are no consistent standards across different organizations, jurisdictions, asset managers, and the like. So that's that's been the, the unfortunate um, um, uh, uh, focus for uh, or, or the that that has caused many in-house counsel to 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 have to focus on disclosures purely mm-hmm. but the real issues are the underlying issues which are the, the strategic trade-offs that have to be made because as everybody knows uh, ESG being as omnibus as it is is not always uh, coherent as far as the various standards expectations and criteria uh, within each of the categories and so there are uh, very important trade-offs that have to be made by a company as to where they will focus, how they will focus, um, and in what ways. And that's where the GC becomes part of that conversation because of the, the legal exposures and regulatory exposures that have now that have now come into force. Um, three, yeah. four years ago, that regulation didn't exist. Nowadays mm-hmm. it does, and more is coming. We're only the tip of the iceberg of it now. Um, and the main the main area of focus where technology is going to be very interesting as a potential solution will be in the value chain transparency of the company um, because that's where compliance is going to impact companies with respect to ESG. It's going to be about with respect to the E and the S, it's going to be about um, what's in the value chain up and down it and what's going out to the end product and the end user. Um, so um, with all of that regulation coming into force around human trafficking, around uh, climate footprint, carbon um, uh, uh, carbon emissions and so forth, um, AI and blockchain specifically will have a lot to do with how companies are able to, to, to meet the expectations and will inform the decisions that will be made as to who they work with commercially and how they go about things. Um, so that's that's a, that's a really a, 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 an interesting and exciting area. And it's a necessary shift from thinking purely about what can we say or should we say and not say in our disclosure statements to how are we actually operating the company, managing the business and protecting it from risk. That's fascinating because we always talk about the role of the GC changing, but I think this is this is on a whole other level. <laughs> I feel like in, in relation in relation to their stakeholders and whatnot, I think their their role is, is going to be a lot more stressful, <laughs> it seems. <laughs> Well, there's no question about it. I've seen and spoken to uh, more GCs who are having a greater role and responsibility, not just as uh, secretary to the board of the company, but for broader stakeholder engagement um, beyond beyond shareholders and investors to people in the public sphere and the community. Yeah. To- Obviously, to regulators and governing authorities and regulatory bodies, uh, but then, but then also to the uh, to, to to internal constituencies and external constituencies all around the company who, you know, will be and are impacted by 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 the way the company operates. Um, and so that that role for public affairs, external affairs, secretary to the board, shareholder relations, these are the areas that. Um, are 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 the major shift over the, mm-hmm. the recent number of years, and ESG is a massive driver for why that is happening. That's that's fascinating. And, and um, how do you think those in-house teams can best prepare for those um, changes, and, and how can firms uh, help them do that right now? Well, I think. Um, 
the having the right regulatory insights um, in the, the far-flung places that a, a corporation may be operating, where it's sourcing, where it's selling, um, where it's producing, of course, um, are is, is is probably the the first and foremost important thing. And so that really means having um, people on the ground who understand the local communities and business environment. Perhaps have gone to school with regulators. They've seen and they understand how things might be interpreted or implemented, not just mm-hmm. with the or the law is so very much so having those local insights is, is is hugely hugely important and then deploying that in a timely fashion around the strategic decision making of the company so really thinking about talking to the general counsel at an early stage when perhaps the corporate development finance and, and executive uh, management and board of the company are thinking about um, the future of the company and how how it's developing and which markets it might play in which sectors which types of products and services and where those mm-hmm. might uh, might be uh, might be rendered is something that um, something that a consultation with the GC and getting earlier stage guidance and insight will be very very helpful um, the days I think are over that you could for instance do a mega merger and just wait and see what happens in the merger review process across multiple jurisdictions. Um, There's much more appreciation now that even in a smaller jurisdiction that could be peripheral to the acquisition or to the merger, um, you could uh, could find yourself uh, facing an expensive delay. And that's not something that that should uh, should be off the radar when it occurs. (laughs) It should be something that, and it is something that can be prepared for, Um, but it takes a different approach to to thinking about managing the legal issues um, in a a different approach, perhaps to managing the legal advice itself. And that's where Equisphere is designed to to try to to address some of those issues that corporate counsel face when managing the cross-border situations. Um, and I think last uh, topic of the day, we've got a couple of stories to, to tackle that is kind of billable hours. <laughs> so um, I think one of the stories, uh, both of them were from law.com. One of them was talking about well, how GCs were, I mean, quite unhappy with um, the, the hours that they, they were doing, uh, the, the hours that we're paying for. Sorry. Um, obviously, the, the bills are getting quite high. Um, you know, for the past, I guess, three years between the pandemic and then uh, recovering from that and, and different economic factors everywhere around the world. I think a lot of clients are, um, well, thinking carefully about their own finances and their budgets. And um, I think in the, in the past few months, we've, at least in London, uh, we've seen quite a few firms um, find innovative ways to respond to their client demands around um, paying them and kind of, you know, sometimes delaying payments or, or you know, um, accepting them over, you know, several months. And we've seen some very, very interesting things. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And there was a second story about um, Denton suing one of their clients in the US for uh, not paying their, their bills. Um, so again, it's not something we see very often, but it kind of brings the point around, you know, what's the situation like at the moment for, for in-house teams and, and kind of paying their advisors and um, are we going to see more disputes uh, around payments and things like that? Uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that really on this whole topic. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, it's a it's a it's an interesting topic to bring up, especially right now at this time, because we're 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 in the midst of a, another um, global economic pivot, if you will. Yeah. Um, so coming off the pandemic, there is just an enormous demand of uh, for legal advice. Um, on the transactional side with all of the trillions in stimulus money that have been pumped into the economy that 
then began to enable um, uh, a fairly um, significant degree of, of transactional activity and, and, and other investment happening and that all needed legal advice to accompany it. So the demand uh, factor was very, very high. And the second factor that was high was inflation uh, because mm. when trillions of dollars of stimulus were pumped into the economy, of course, um, you're, you'll recall your basic economics courses in, in university and, and know that, that that will play out in the, the form of significant inflation and that is happened. Um, so with both factors in mind, uh, the rates for law firms uh, were, were driven up um, and yeah. and clients were in a position also to to follow those rates uh, because the work needed to be done and there is an appreciation for the inflationary situation perhaps and and they themselves were benefiting from some of the stimulus that was uh, sloshing around in the in the in the, in the markets. Um, so so that created an artificial situation of high rates and, and I, I always personally thought that that could be a matter of time before those come back down to earth again. And we yeah. have pivoted, of course, now to a situation where um, the artificial demand inflation uh, has, has has started to come down and firms are starting to find that their war for talent is not as acute as it was maybe a year and a half ago. And yeah. and so you would expect uh, rates might, might follow down. Now, things don't deflate usually as easily as they inflate, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, and so the pushback from the client side is going to have be part of that market pressure that will uh, that will bring things back into some kind of new uh, new equilibrium, if you will. Um, you know, the underlying issue here, really, uh, with respect to both the rates and and technology, is 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 how the work is being performed. Um, and, yeah. and how it is being managed and whether whether that should or could be done more efficiently. And so um, that's the conversation that everybody's trying to have at this moment um, to, yeah. to explore and understand where can where can the client derive greater value of the, you know, the, the actual value of the legal advice that they're looking for, which is good business guidance, support around risk management, and, and if necessary, remediation of a, of a, of a, a, a disputational situation if that's what's needed. Um, so um, getting that that right in the formula of how legal advice is rendered and provided is the underlying issue. Um, on the on the billable rates front and the question of, you know, there's that article uh, about on law.com about um, how how clients are pushing back on billable hours and billable rates. Yes, this is a yeah. conversation we've been having for, I've been in the legal profession 20 years and we've been having it, you know, before I came came to the profession. Um, so it's a longstanding uh, discussion. The underlying issue is, is that law firms do their cost accounting on a billable rate basis. Yeah, um, yeah. And as long as, and, and similar to the tax and accounting profession as well, as I understand it. So, you know, as long as cost accounting internally is on that basis, they're going to want to measure their profitability on that same basis. And so even an AFA, if it's a fixed fee or a tax fee, oftentimes is nothing more than an aggregation of billable rates to make that estimate. Um, and so it's a bit of smoke and mirrors sometimes when those things are dressed up as being alternative because it's just another way of expressing the billable hour, uh, if you will. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally get it. And I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously now it seems clear that we're not expecting the billable hour to just disappear or to be changed suddenly. It would take a long time for any firm to do that, I think. But do you think there's an argument then to have more value-based or quality-based um, pricing rather than pricing on billable hour, the amount of time, just actually pricing based on what, what you're actually, the advice you're actually giving in <laughs> the work that you're doing? Right. And, the, you know, the analog here is investment bankers, of course, and yeah. 
and and even management consultants in some situations may may bill on that basis. Um, I think there have been good cases of that happening, and and in some some firms that has happened and been happening for for some time already. Uh, but it seems to be in, uh, the exception rather than the rule, as you said. Yeah. Um, probably the most high profile example of that. Uh, in the headlines recently was the uh, the case of Elon Musk suing Moctel for issuing a $90 million invoice to the uh, the board of Twitter, uh, which it had represented in, in in their dispute with Elon Musk over the takeover um, uh, of the company. And um, they issued that invoice uh, literally, as I understand it, or the invoice was paid rather, as I understand it, literally in in in, in the hour hours just before the closing of the uh, of the transaction, uh, so that the board would would empty some of the coffers of of the Twitter uh, uh, treasury that would be turned over to Elon uh, after uh, after acquisition, and Elon uh, finally found the ninety million dollar expenditure in the uh, in the accounts, and it wasn't wasn't uh, he was rather nonplussed, if you will. So <laughs> he's challenging that now, but uh, it seems that. You know, this is a classic case where that was there were not ninety million dollars worth of worth of billable hours necessarily that went yeah. into that calculation of that fee. That was a fee based around uh, what Wachtell and the board had both perceived to be the valuative advice Wachtell was was rendering to the board in that that that, that high profile litigation. It is fascinating. I think a few months ago in, in the UK, we had a case where I can't remember who the firm was, but um, in the litigation, um, the judge had criticized the amount they had charged the client um, because they thought it was too much. Uh, but it, it's interesting because I don't know if in the US uh, there would be a mechanism for, for anyone to, to say that is unreasonable the amount that you're paying but in the uk i mean that was interesting to us because you don't you don't hear that often especially from a judge so it's it, it was just yeah it, it's a fascinating topic um and, and one to watch out for for sure uh, i can't see uh, in-house teams being um happy again with the raise anytime soon um but listen eric it's been lovely to have you on thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it um it's been lovely yeah, it's been my pleasure. Good talking to you, Megan. Thanks. Uh, and uh, for the listeners, we're on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, and we'll be back next week for another episode. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Council Culture, the Business of Law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and join us again next week. We'll be discussing some more of the biggest stories in the legal sector.